We are back in the Psalms this week. Psalm 24 is where we're at today. And if you remember, um, the way you get to the book of Psalms, you just open up right to the middle of your Bible, bam, you're there. Uh, And then they're in numerical order, so they're easy to find. Uh, And I realize today we're in Psalm 24. Last time we did Psalm 23. It might seem like we're just going to go through the order, but uh, next week we will not be in Psalm 25. At least that's not the plan. Um, God can do whatever he wants. Maybe we will be. Anyway, so this is a psalm that is written by King David. And and one of the things that's wonderful about knowing the author of these is because, uh, just like last time when we looked at Psalm 23, to, to hear about David writing, as, uh, writing about God uh, as a shepherd was a, a wonderful thing because David actually in his younger ages, younger days, was a shepherd. And, and so he had a great understanding of what that was. And, and, and today we're going to see this, this image uh, of God as, as king. And, and David also has this experience of being king over Israel. And so he understands well this, this image that he's speaking of when he, when he tells us about God as king. Uh, only in the case of, of God, it's not just over Israel, it's over the entire earth, it's over all of creation. Um, so, Psalm 24 is just 10 verses long, it's short enough that we're going to read the whole thing, uh, and then we'll pray, and, and then we'll get into it in a little more detail. So let's do that. Uh, Psalm 24. <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let us pray. Lord, you are the King of glory. Long live our King. Teach us by your word this afternoon what a glorious God you are, the God who has called us out of darkness and into your glorious light, creating us a loyalty that is stronger than any other idea or person or group that seeks to sway us from loyalty to you who are the true King, the King who lays down his life for his people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to start out with a little bit of a framework <clears throat> regarding this, this text. Uh, there's three distinct sections. In fact, if you're looking at it, most of your Bibles will divide it. You'll see a big gap between each section, and you begin to see that. Um, and, and you'll see that verses 1 and 2 at first might seem a little out of place in this, and that's because the, the second section, we see God, um, God's people are going to him. And then in the third section, we see God coming to his people, but this, this first section speaks about God, um, the universal authority, uh, place of authority that God has over all the world. And so what you've got to understand is that there are uh, many false gods who were thought to be God over a particular area, particularly in this, this time period. There was a, a God over a city, or there was a God over a family, or a tribe, or, or any other smaller group. And 
<clears throat> I think sometimes I hear that, and it sounds absolutely crazy to me. How can there be a, a God over this small little section, this small little area? Uh, but let me remind you just of the culture that we live in. Uh, see, the truth is, nobody cares who your God is in our culture. They really don't. And I know we tend to think they do, but they don't, because you're going to get absolutely no flack for saying that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. You just, you won't. You know, it, it'd be awkward, but really, you could walk into any group of any people gathered together and just prance in there and, hopefully you don't prance, walk in there and say, Jesus is my God. And sure, they'd give you a weird look. There's some kind of response like, okay, thanks for sharing, bro. Um, but the reality is, no one's going to care. Uh, no one cares if you say that, that Yahweh is your God. And, and that's because it's a personal thing that, you know, believe whatever you want to believe personally. However, if you find yourself in the same situation, you begin to express that the triune God of Christianity is the only God, and, and everyone's God, and the only way to salvation is found in Jesus Christ, well, that's a different story. Now people care. And so yes, God is a personal God. That's indeed true. He's a national God. That's why scripture often refers to God as the God of Israel. Uh, but we see here in the first two verses of, of Psalm 24 is, is this, that God is not just a personal God and God is not just a national God, but he is God over all of creation, over every body and soul that has ever existed on planet Earth, he is God over that. And if, if we ever learn about life on some other planet, he's going to be God over them as well. That's the kind of kingship we're talking about here, kingship at the absolute highest level. Um, in fact, in the, in the book of Acts, the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're expecting God to bring back uh, Israel to this place of power, of military power, of, of might, to be a, a mighty nation there locally. And, and really, that's why two verses later in Acts, in Acts 1.8, 1, uh, <clears throat> Jesus has to teach them that, that his kingdom is different. And, and he teaches them that the kingdom of God is, is this spiritual kingdom that will not be only local, but will extend off to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the people of God in this receive the Holy Spirit. And then they're tasked with this responsibility to take the gospel beyond the border so that the kingdom of God spreads beyond every socio-political border that might exist. And what this means is that Jesus is the rightful king over everything and everyone. So I want you to listen to verses 1 and 2 again, and, and I want you to think about this. Hear this universal place of authority that, that, that God holds. <clears throat> it says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so what belongs to God? Everything. I mean, think about what that actually means. You see, we can put up our, our no trespassing signs on whatever we want in our life, but, but what we're learning here is that we're not the rightful owner of that, and so God is not bound by any, any signs or, or borders we might put up. I mean, do you understand this? Your, your home, God's, 
your soul, God's, your body, God's, your career, your money, God's, your marriage, your children, God's, our ethics, our ideas, our thoughts, all of that is God because God has a rightful place over us. He has created us and we belong to them. I love that, the quote in our reflection. I don't know if you take the time to read those at the beginning of the service, but um, Abraham Kuyper, he says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And you see, we see this same idea all over the scriptures. I'll give you one. Psalm 89, 11, speaking of God, says, The heavens are yours, the earth is are you, uh, is, also, is yours, also is yours. The world and all that it is in it, you have founded them. And I want you to notice back in uh, verse 1 of Psalm 24, it says, and those who dwell therein. That's people. That's me and that's you. And, and here's the thing. Um, God is God over you, whether you know this or not. That's the thing with authority. We don't really have to acknowledge it before you're held accountable. It's best if you know. Everything works out better if you know, but it's not absolutely required. Uh, and in fact, even the laws of our land support this. A few years back, I was driving down I-35, and, and on the side of the road, this is just south of Kansas City, and on the side of the road was a, a police car just sitting there, had no one turned pulled over, no lights on, um, and so when I saw him, I slowed down to the speed limit, and drove right past him and immediately he flicked his lights on and pulled me over and I'm thinking what in the world did I do um, <clears throat> you see he explained to me that you can't pass a police car on the side of the road even if it doesn't have lights on even if no one's pulled over anything like that and I began to explain to him listen I saw you I, I could have gone in the other lane I did not think I broke a law I had no knowledge of this law at all uh, and so he told me well now you know carry on have a good day no that's not what he told me. He said, here's your ticket, and I had to show up to pay this ticket. And regardless, it didn't matter that I didn't know what the law was. Um, and so I learned that day that, that really it's cheaper to speed in Nebraska, I know this from experience as well, um, than to drive past the police car just sitting on the side of the road. So learn that as well. Uh, the point, though, is that, that God has a right over our lives, whether you acknowledge him to have one or not. In fact... Really, it's the essence of human rebellion that, that we, the, the creature, uh, would seek to make God, the creator, answer to us, to prove himself. Uh, Colossians also confirms that we exist not for ourselves, but for God uh, as our creator. Colossians 1.16 reads, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things by God and for God. And now I want you to, to know this, that verse 2, uh, we're not going to spend much time on this, but understand that's, that's not bad science you're reading there. That's good poetry is what you're reading there. It's, it's putting this creation of the earth in the terms that the Israelites would have understand as it speaks about uh, these foundations. And so what, we, what we've seen here is God has a, a rightful place of authority over everything. And then verses 3 through 6, this is our, our second section, begins speaking of, of the preparation, of the requirements for us to come into the presence of God. Now look at verse 3 again. It asks this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? 
See, it's asking who can be in the presence of God? Who can approach God? I think sometimes we are such a casual culture that this seems like a really strange question to us. And I think part of that is we understand this concept of presidents as a culture, but we really have no idea this concept of, of king. We just, we just can't understand it. Um, and really, this, this hit me yesterday when, uh, when Jacob Black was, was speaking at the men's thing, and he said, you don't vote for a king. And that's absolutely right. You, you just get a king. You don't vote for him. And really, kings are more, prep, more powerful than presidents. Kings are, are worthy of respect that we hardly can even fathom in our own culture. I think the book of Esther actually gives us a, a good picture. And here we're talking about a, a king that's nothing compared to the glorious goodness of our God. But, but in the book of Esther, she finds herself in this position where she needs to go into the presence of the king uh, to seek refuge, to seek salvation for her people. And, and she was terrified of this. Uh, in Esther 4.11, we can, we can see why she was afraid. It says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's providence know that if any man or woman goes to the, king, uh, to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. See, she and her people understood the great danger of standing before this king, and this is just a worldly king. And so they fasted for three days preparing for this. And in fear, she actually approaches this, this king. And she stands before them. And indeed, she does receive his favor. And, and her people are saved. So here's the thing, though. God is the king over all of creation. Over everyone. And we all have to stand before God someday. Uh, Kevin DeYoung puts this wonderfully. He says, not all paths lead to God's favor. But all paths do lead to God. We will all have to stand before him one day. And this is true even if we deny that God exists. You see, if I get arrested today uh, for some crime today, who knows what it will be. Uh, no matter how much I insist that the judge does not exist, no matter how much I insist that the judge has no right over me, I will find myself standing before that judge having to give an account. So this question then in verse 3 is this question of who can come into the presence of God and, and stand there. And verse 4 answers that question. The psalmist writes, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands. This is about outer holiness, our actions. This pure heart, that's about the inner holiness, uh, our belief, our thoughts. Jesus speaks of this inner holiness as, as well in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8, when, he's, when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, listing clean hearts and a pure, or clean hands and a pure heart together then tells us that this is a, a call to someone who is the same on the inside and the outside, as in not a hypocrite. You know, he or she doesn't live one way at church gatherings and a completely different way at work or at home or out on the weekends. I want you to notice also this, this list. This is not some Pharisee list. It's not like there's some guy halfway up this hill with a clipboard, you know, asking you to turn in your application and, and list off your qualifications. And he's not going through this list of, you know, how many, how many VBSs have you served at? Can you play the piano? You know, how many times have you shared the gospel this year? 
How many steps did you take on the Sabbath this year? Um, <clears throat> these are the kind of things. So what we see here then is, is what is God looking for? And we see sincerity and purity and humility. It's like we learn in Psalm 51:17, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And our passage tells us then in verse 4, it's the person who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's a person who worships God and not idols. Not their spouse, not their children, not sports or career or anything else. It's, it's basically the first and second commandments of the, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the last thing listed here is one who does not swear deceitfully. Again, that comes, and you can see it in the Ninth Commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness. Now, if you're hearing these, I, I hope you, you do feel the sense of this, that these are heavy requirements. Um, there's a sense that we really need to feel the, the weight of this. And, and, and because it intends to keep us from being presumptuous. In fact, it's intended to stir in us this, this sense of humility and repentance as we, we feel our need for the mercy of God. In Psalm 15, there's a real similar passage to this. It says, um, it says, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the answer Psalm 15 gives is, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but, despised but, who, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. See, there's a tendency we have today to believe that there really are no more requirements to stand in the presence of God. We tend to have this idea that Jesus removes the requirements, but that's not the case. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see what Jesus actually does there. Jesus doesn't remove the requirements. He does something much better. He fulfills the requirements on our behalf. And he does even more than that. You see, God gives the Holy Spirit to dwell in us as, as Christians. And when we begin to learn what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord, we learn what it means to obey the Word of God and, and to do so in the power of God. And verse 5, then, is this, this Old Testament reference to really the doctrine of justification uh, by faith. It says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. We, we come to God humbly, and we receive at the, from the hand of God blessing and righteousness. It, it's not the one who says, I've done nothing wrong. It's not the one who, even worse, says, I've done everything right. It's, no, it's, it's those who like the tax collector that Jesus speaks of in Luke 18, um, who in the presence of God prays this. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and one of the beautiful things we see there is that Christ says of, of that repentant, uh, tax, uh, repentant tax collector, Jesus says, he went down to his house justified. Verse 6 then tells us, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Here we learn some application of this. You know, do you desire to have clean hands and a pure heart and faithfulness to the, only one, the one and only true God um, that this portion of our text is speaking of? 
then seek God. It's a call to seek the face of God. Uh, perhaps you've heard the well-known phrase, quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase, and it literally means before God. R.C. Sproul says of this phrase, he says, this phrase refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. It's a call for us to live with an, an understanding that we are under the authority of God in our lives. Um, when we gather here for worship, but also in his presence on, at midnight on a Friday evening, or two in the afternoon when we're at work, that we are living in the presence of God. Uh, all of life before the face of God. And then our, our last portion, we begin to see the picture changes. It changes from, from God's people coming into his presence uh, to that of, uh, of God, the mighty king, coming into the place where his people dwell. Um, that was our call to worship. I want you to listen to it again. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Do you hear the, the reverence in this? Heads lifting to see who is coming. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. You know, as I, I researched this week, I, I found myself trying to make sense out of this image because all the gates I, I understood opened up this way. It made no sense that you'd lift them up, right? you just break them off the hinges. Uh, some of you probably caught on to this quicker than I did, but often the gates of the cities were, were similar to what you might picture on a door. It was uh, not two doors being opened horizontally, but, but one single large door that was lifted vertically, just slid upward. And, and these gates were usually partially open, and so part of it was kind of hanging down, but enough that people could walk in. However, when, when someone of honor showed up at the, at the city and began to walk into the city uh, and was approaching the gates, these, these would be lifted all the way up. It was a way of showing honor that, that the person coming in is of such significance that we open the gates as far as they go. And, and the picture then is that the king of glory, God, is, is approaching, and so the sign of reverence, we open the gates that he might come in. And, and the question that that's being asked here is, who is this, this king of glory? And God's word says it's the Lord. If you look in, in your Bibles there, you'll notice that it's all capital letters. And you remember what it means when, when it's all capital letters in, in, in the Old Testament. It means that this is the personal name of God. This is the name Yahweh, the, the, the Hebrew word uh, or name. And, and this picture is the Lord is approaching. And, and the exhortation to us is to open up the gates for God. I mean... Think of your attitude when, when someone shows up at your front door. You'll begin to kind of get this picture. If it's, if it's a Girl Scout out there selling cookies, you might be a little hesitant to open that door. But if it's weeks later and you've already paid for the cookies and you know she's bringing them, you open those doors right up. You're excited to see her. Uh, or you look out and you see a Jehovah Witness coming to witness to you. You might not open that door. But you look out and you begin to see one of your good friends and uh, or, or kids, you look out and you see your grandma, your grandpa. How quickly do you open that door for them to come in? Because you want them to come in. So what about the Lord? I, I don't mean literally knocking on your door. That would be really strange. But, but symbolically in your life, is, is there joy in 
opening the gates, opening the door that the king of glory might come in and, and rule in your life. Because it should be. Now there are a couple of things to see here. One is, is, is this. Some of the psalms uh, are referred to as messianic psalms. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. Uh, messianic, it's like the word Messiah comes from that. Uh, and it's referring to, to Christ, who is the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, and what this means is that some psalms uh, give a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Christ coming. And, and one of the things you see in Psalm 24 is there is absolutely no doubt this is a messianic psalm. It's one that speaks uh, of Christ, the King of glory. And, and it points to Christ as our King. And, and, and that's one of the things I love when we, when we get to see God's providence in, in history working its way out because there's these, these old documents, Jewish documents, which tell us about, about this psalm, Psalm 24. And it was, it was used in, in Jewish worship liturgy on the first day of each week. Do you know what day that is? Um, that's Sunday. This was, was used in their liturgy on Sundays. What this means is that on, on Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus was actually entering Jerusalem on, on a donkey, when people were laying down palm branches in, in his path to welcome him into the city, on that very day, these words of Psalm 24 were being recited by the Jewish priests who were waiting for God to provide their Savior. And, and so on Palm Sunday, the King of glory, the Messiah, the Savior that they have been waiting for, enters the gates of Jerusalem. And thus begins the week that leads to the, Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, securing salvation for his people. Also, who is the only one who ultimately fulfills this list of things we saw in verses 3 through 6? Clean hands and pure heart, faithful to God the Father, always speaking truth. Christ. And Christ alone is the only one who perfectly fulfills that. And so who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, Christ and Christ alone. So what are we going to do with Christ? And you think back to this in history. You know, what did the Jews overwhelmingly do with Christ? How did they respond to the coming of their king? And the truth is that overwhelmingly they rejected him. I think the question is, how, how will we respond to the coming of the King of Glory? You see, one major aspect of preaching week in and, and week out, week after week, is that we're heralding, we're proclaiming Christ as our King, all of our King. And, and we herald essentially saying, open the gates that the King of Glory may come in. And that means that we confess our sinfulness. That means we feel, feel the humility of not being good enough to ascend the hill of the Lord. And that means that in repenting, turning from our sin. And part of that repenting is saying, God, I desire to have clean hands. I desire to have a pure heart. I desire to be faithful to you. I desire to speak truth with my lips. I desire to seek a life that is lived always in your presence. And brothers and sisters, the, the, in the Lord... You know, let us confess that Christ is our King. And may we live and, and seek out our lives with loyalty to this merciful and gracious and loving and saving King that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, you know our faults. You know our failures. You know our sin. And we come to you as, as children who have been playing in so much filth. We come with dirty hands and unpure hearts and you wash us clean in the gospel. We thank you for preparing us to be in your presence now and forever. 
Thank you for the mighty work of your spirit in our lives, sanctifying us in various ways and degrees. Lord, give us today a great sense of your presence that we might open, way, open wide the gates and with joy receive our King in every aspect of our lives. To be under your authority, Lord, is, is greater than to be over every other authority in the land. Long live the King. Amen.